0: welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event co-sponsored by the Royal Institute of Philosophy. We are on the road. My name is Sarah Fine. I'm a fellow at the Forum and I teach philosophy at King's College London. What is travel? What have philosophers said about it? Why do we do it? And what's the value of it? How and why is travel politicized? And what's the future of travel in the face of 21st century developments and crises? Joining us to discuss the politics and philosophy of travel, Colin Clarke is professor in the School of Education and Social Sciences at the University of the West of Scotland. He works in Romani Studies and Ethnic and Racial Studies with a special interest in migration, identity and citizenship. He sits on the board of directors of the Glasgow-based anti-racist organisation, the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights. He's a trustee of the Roma Rights Group, Romano Lav, and among other writings, he's co-author of Here to Stay, The Gypsies and Travellers of Britain. Nick Hayes is an author and illustrator. His graphic novels include The Rhyme of the Modern Mariner, Woody Guthrie and the Dust Bowl Ballads, and Cormorants. As an illustrator, he has produced numerous book covers, including For Lark by Anthony McGowan, He's also a printmaker and political cartoonist for The Guardian and The New Statesman, and he's author of the Sunday Times bestseller, The Book of Trespass. Emily Thomas is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Durham University. She's author of Absolute Time, Rifts in Early Modern British Metaphysics, and editor of Early Modern Women on Metaphysics. Her most recent book and most pertinent for today's discussion is The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. Thank you all and welcome. So, first of all, we're going to think a bit about travel as a source of knowledge about ourselves and the world. So, Emily, would you mind getting us started?
1: Thanks Sarah, happily. Philosophers began to get interested in travel in the late 16th, early 17th centuries and this was the age of discovery. You had all these ships wandering off around the world bringing back um, information about other places Um, and philosophers got just as caught up in this wave of interest as everybody else did. So it really started with Francis Bacon who came up with a new philosophy of science arguing that if we want to understand the natural world, we can't just sit in our armchairs and reason about it. We actually have to go out, see what's there, observe things, collect things. And Bacon inspired a whole new generation of scientists through this new underlying philosophy. But it wasn't just Bacon. Other people got on the bandwagon. So John Locke followed through on Bacon Arguing that travel can be a source of knowledge, not just about the natural world, but also about ourselves. So Locke began collecting effectively anthropological reports, so people who were describing what other societies and cultures were like. And Locke uses these to make various philosophical arguments. One of them, he thinks that travel shows us that human beings are not all born with the same innate ideas and um, because different societies have such different views on things like ethics and god uh, that clearly there can't be the same innate ideas born to everybody around the world other philosophers Think that travel can be a source of knowledge about art that it can give us new aesthetic experiences that can actually change the way that we think about art um, and yet others look at the way that different societies have constructed political systems and they use that to argue that for various different views and political philosophy um, so it's very much a gathering information and using that to To change our philosophy of things.
0: That's really fascinating, thank you. And what about the question of how far we need to go in order to
1: get that value from travel? Yeah, I mean, I I think we need to go as far as we can. (laughs) Philosophy is often it's not just about trying to answer questions that we don't know the answer to yet. It's about coming up with questions that we haven't even thought of yet. And I think that's something that travel really does. The farther we get out into the universe or below the seas of this planet, we're going to encounter new things and they're going to change at the very least make us question fundamental assumptions that we have about the world. And I think the more we can shake our fundamental assumptions, the better.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh Colin, can I invite you to come in here to think about travel as a source of knowledge?
2: Yeah, no, of course, Sarah. Uh, and well thank thanks for the invitation. And also thanks to Emily there for for kind of kicking us off with some really some really interesting kind of big, big kind of ideas. I suppose the, the points I wanted to make are really Around, well, initially, anyway, uh, travel as a kind of identity, as a form of identity, as a source of identity. And in the work that, that it kind of I it's, do, it's really, I suppose, around the reasons behind travel. What is the motivations behind travel? So, for example, within many uh, gypsy and traveller families in the UK and across different parts of Europe, um, it's a form of, um, in a sense, commercial nomadism that's how we can maybe understand it and and again I should preface really all that I say by saying that I'm not a a philosopher or even a historian Um, I'm a sociologist and even then a bit of a pretend sociologist but but I think commercial nomadism as the, the economic basis of, of travel, travel with purpose, I suppose we might say, that's really a, one really important dynamic that's at play. The other part of it in terms of travel as identity for, tra- for traveller families is the way that travel and nomadism is connected to the life cycle. Um, and different parts of that. So the fairs uh, that you, you probably have all heard of—Stone uh, the World, uh, Appleby's, uh, one of the more famous horse fairs—obviously uh, they're all on hold at the moment uh, due to the current situation we find ourselves in. And what you're kind of finding there is that the fairs, going back to the 1200s, you know, and before really, were sources of, uh, you know. That's how marriages kind of came about. That's how you can, again, you, you found out the gossip about who's doing what. And, and and every part of the life cycle was kind of bound up um, with uh, movement and with travel and, and particularly the fairs. It was a, a source of kind of social and community reproduction. And then the third aspect I think that's really important here, uh, Jean-Pierre Lejeune, a French sociologist, he talked about nomadism as being uh, as much a kind of state of mind as being a state of reality uh, and a state of being, you know, Um, and in the current circumstances, I think that's quite important to hold on to. It's a potential, it's the potential of travel, it's the potential of nomadism. And I think another way of thinking about this when you you know we might get, get onto this later in terms of the politics of it, is is what I, I what I my, myself and other uh, colleagues, for example, Robbie Robbie McVeigh, uh, an Irish sociologist and activist, is, has talked about as the the concept and the ideology of sedentarism, and we are kind of thinking about sedentarism here as an ideology of anti-nomadism. And I think that is really important to bear in mind when you think about successive government attempts, really going back to King James and Henry VIII and Queen Mary to basically stop travel, to stop nomadism. Uh, and we see that every every day, but I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment.
0: Thank you so much, Colin. That's fantastic. Nick, can I bring you in here? Because gypsies and travellers feature quite heavily in elements of your book on trespass, don't they? Can you tell us a little bit about what you think of in relation to travel and travel as a source of knowledge?
3: Sure. I mean, thanks very much for having me. I guess the the travel that I was most concerned with when writing my book was a kind of internal uh, or um, within the nation travel. Uh, And I guess I got into traveling through the notion of the vagabond or essentially people that were penalized or criminalized Mm. for their freedom of movement. And it was interesting to me that that there's like a sort of um, there's a moral bridge between the practical and the moral when it comes to the language that we use for people that sort of stray off the path. Even even that phrase has a sense of uh, the kind of moral uh, deviance kind of thing. But this idea that you can be a vagabond uh, or that you can be someone that is to be suspected of, of something, something undefined, uh, simply by not keeping to your designated space or simply by moving on, kind of presupposes that the lines that are put there, that are your designated territory, kind of presupposes that those lines have an inherent they are they are right in, in their own sort of inherent uh, quality. The question that I wanted to ask was who put the lines there, uh, who decides who's allowed to go where and, and actually what are these things based on? So mm. one of my chapters deals uh, very specifically with this sense of why are we so scared of the person uh, or the family or the communities that are in perpetual motion what is it about moving that people find so terrifying and actually it's it really and, and it exists to this day and actually we're about to see the criminalization of trespass which is an act that the conservatives have been baying for for the last 10 years and finally Pretty Patel is going to um, gloriously bring it in probably about March and it's interesting because in some ways uh, it's an act that incorporates every single person that enjoys the freedom of the countryside. In other ways, it's one of those things that is just basically camouflage for bigotry against people that travel. So yeah, I, I guess for me, what what I was interested in is the notion that to travel is to 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 wander freely, and it's a kind of semantic accident that wandering and wandering are so similar but again it's one of those bridges where the the, the practical exercising of your right to freedom of motion does also create the ability to wonder and to um just see different things that spark the imagination so I, i you know My book was essentially an investigation into why exploration and wonder have been so heavily criminalized over the past thousand years.
0: Thank you, Nick. That's fantastic. And that actually brings us beautifully into the next section of of our discussion, because I wanted Colin to get us thinking about how and why travel is politicized, uh, racialized and criminalized.
2: This is, yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing project and it's a very big question. I mean, to my mind, you know, those, um, the the children's series, the horrible histories. So to to my mind, I think maybe Nick's next project or maybe actually uh, Damien, Damien Labat, like Damien Labat, who's an English uh, Romany Gypsy, wrote a brilliant book uh, a couple of years ago called The Stopping Places. And he kind of gets into uh, some of the issues that Nick gets into as well with this idea of, you know, why is movement penalized? Why is it criminalized in the way it has? And I suppose one route into this issue about politics, race, and the racialization aspect, which I think is really important as well to think about in the criminalization aspect. I keep going back to not just this idea of a horrible history, you know, writing a kind of a horrible history version of it, but also remembering uh, an event I went to, it was a protest actually, outside the House of Lords uh, and the House of Commons, and it was about the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994. And that, you know, you can go back a lot further. As I said, you can go back to the 1200s, 1500s, King James and all the rest of it. But to bring it up to the modern time, When you think about what that act tried to do, and did do effectively, uh, it ripped up the the need for local authorities to have site provision for gypsies and travellers in their areas. Uh, It also, of course, tried to uh, do away with rave music, a succession of repetitive beats. I'm sure I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but you know, the, uh, the 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 government went full force. And and in many ways, what Patel is trying to do now, which which Nick is, was talking about earlier, there is kind of going back to that. It, it's it's this idea of how do we how do we clean up the countryside? This idea, this notion of the rural idyll, which is really important to my mind, I think, in the English mindset, Scotland as well. I think obviously I've got a, a bias there, but uh, I think in in Scottish mindset as much as the English mindset. It as well. But I suppose one other aspect, and you can look at the work of David mile uh, you can look at the work of Becky Taylor, who are h- historians that have researched this, and a lot of it does come down to this idea of what we can think about, and, and maybe it is too strong a term, but I, I don't think it's inappropriate, is the idea of a, a kind of social and ethnic, a kind of cultural kind of cleansing and genocide, Except what we're seeing now and, and have seen really since uh, many, many generations now, it's, it's been enacted through law and policy rather than through guns and bombs. Although at one point, you know, you could be deported and you could be hung if you were deemed to be a gypsy or, de- you know, in, in, in the United Kingdom. So I think that's a kind of important point. The other, the other thing I think that's also important to be inclusive here is when you think about travels across borders, This immediately, of course, brings us to the issue of Brexit and particularly the situation of Romani communities from Central and Eastern Europe who are in the UK right now. Very precarious status in terms of their um, position and their their belonging within the United Kingdom. And getting settled status as as anyone that's applied for it is not an easy thing to do particularly if you don't have the right documentation with you. And then the other part of it, I suppose, is the impact of COVID-19. And I've seen this particularly up here in Glasgow, the impact it's had on on show people, on fairground travellers and fairground families. It's had a devastating economic impact on those families. And the Showman's Guild have been very eloquent in trying to canvass the government for support on that. So what you've seen, I think, over the duration is a, a kind of merging together of politics, uh, the racialization and the criminalization of, and a distrust, and that's what Nick was kind of coming on to, this idea of a distrust in someone that's just a bit too nomadic, you know, and we can talk about the the language that's used there. I mean, you know, families will not talk about unauthorized encampments, Uh, you know, they talk about roadside sites that they've used for generations, and they come back one summer and they find that it's been fenced off and they can't use it anymore. And and I think that that semantics and language is really important to appreciate there, too. But I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Nick, can I go over to you now to follow up on this issue of the politicisation of travel?
3: Just listening to Colin just there, there, there's also like another element that hasn't been spoken of that actually is the one that sticks most in the craw which is the uh, simultaneous vilification of traveling communities, whilst also romanticizing them from the sort of historical Gypsy Davy folk songs. I mean, I, I've just joined what might be called the sort of luxury middle class fringe of the traveling community, because me and my girlfriend just six months ago got a boat. And we're, we're sort of, talking at the moment amongst the community there. Something that I learned, uh, I don't know if anyone, I I assume in the crowd that I'm in at the moment, many people have read Songlines by uh, Bruce Chatwin, where he talks about this kind of Aboriginal concept of property or belonging, uh, which is to do with the paths that are walked and the songs that are effectively maps to those paths. And something now living on the Kennet and Avon Canal, you realize that the community is alive and the community cares for each other but the community is in a line and your neighbors will change but they will also remain the same because you'll see them if you saw them in newbury you'll see them in bath at some point but there's there's this sense that what is our solidarity with the traveling community because this happens all the time the telegraph will run an op-ed about uh, how disgusting the traveling sites have been left or you know how disgraceful it is and how untrustworthy traveling communities are uh, and at the very same time, they'll publish in their lifestyle magazine, uh, journalists will go for a week's holiday on a narrow boat and how delightful that all is. Similarly, Wilderness Festival that I trespass in uh, in the Book of Trespass. If you really want to pay full whack, uh, you can spend £2,000 to spend the four days of the festival uh, in the evenings. You can sleep in a gypsy caravan. The reason I picked that particular site was because in the 1800s, it was a very popular anarchist festival where people would just turn up and a bit like Burning Man, just bring what they had and share it with people. To 30, 50,000 people would attend each time. The moment that was turned to private property was the moment these people's ability, just like Colin was saying, these people's ability to come from all over and gather for very either seasonal or based on, you know, saints days or, uh, you know, sort of localized customs, that ability for people to mix and to mingle and ultimately to marry and, you know, sort of create families uh, was taken away. But for the fact that every, you know, in wilderness festival, every year you're allowed to rent that right back off the landowner by paying 200 quid for a ticket. So I I guess one thing that I really want to say is that we have become used to the commercialization and the kind of exoticization of our rights to the countryside and it's become so fused in the marrow of our bones it's become the orthodoxy. One side of the coin is that has allowed us to accept the limitations to our freedoms but the other side of the coin it's it has to come with this sense of suspicion of anyone that has refused to accept that yoke.
0: I want to come back to Emily now on this theme, but moving in a slightly different direction. So the ethics and the politics of travel very much come through in in your book. So on the one hand, of course, we've got the kind of privileged travel of the Grand Tour, for example, and the gendered aspect of the Grand Tour and of travel in, in particular historical periods. Then also you've got the ethical question about where it should be permissible to travel and so on. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about those themes,
1: Emily. I can. So this idea that travel is a worrying thing has been around for a long time. So Plato, I mean, two and a half thousand years ago, he argued that the only people who should be allowed to travel are specially selected men over the age of 40. And when they return to their home countries, and they must not be allowed to mix with the general population, lest they spread worrying ideas um, and I mean this theme has really continued. So with the exception of people who were traveling for work of some kind, kind of soldiers, mercenaries, also pilgrims, um, the only people who could travel for centuries it was the ultra-rich, um, and of course they're white and they're male in the western part of the world because these were the people who had the privilege. This distrust, definitely like lingers today. Um, and it's notable that for all of these political issues that we have on the one hand, and you know, also with people like migrants, uh, there's also this huge romanticization of tourism, that the two things go hand in hand. Um, exactly what Nick's saying about, you know, writing feature articles about narrow boats on the one hand and then all the problems on the other. The ethics of travel, however, I think are becoming even more pressing today for two reasons. One is that tourism is just so big now (laughs) that there are so many people traveling all the time. And that leads to huge pressures on local communities who are hosting tourists, but also on the environment because of climate change. One of the things I've thought about a lot is the ethical dilemma of visiting natural wonders in an era of climate change when the very act of visiting them might actually damage them further. So there's this phenomenon called Doom tourism or last chance to see tourism. And it's been around for a really long time. When there was a shipwreck, uh, people used to rush out to see the ship before it sank beneath the waves. It's same, there are accounts of people visiting medieval battlefields before the blood has been washed away. I mean, this idea of seeing something before it's gone, that's been around for a long time. What's new now is places that are disappearing because of climate change rising sea levels, and um, melting glaciers. And then the, the very act of visiting these places is gonna produce CO2 or even more directly, maybe if you're swimming out to coral reefs, you're gonna be accidentally kicking the reefs. Um, so that's actually gonna hasten the demise of these places. And then it starts to seem really unethical to be doing this last chance tourism. Um, and honestly, I really think the solution has to be that, We have to find ways to visit them responsibly. And if that's not possible, we have to stop visiting them.
0: Well, on this theme of the future of travel, I'd like to come back to... Nick, so obviously it can't have escaped anyone's notice that we're a little stationary right now. We're not really on the road, except metaphorically. So what are we learning from our experiences of travel restrictions? And of course, of the rise of this kind of digital communication? And what's the future of travel, given what Emily was talking about, given the climate crisis, but also given things like the privatisation of public space and the transformation of of migration and movement controls via, for example, digital technologies. So Nick, I wonder if you could kick us off with this.
3: Well, from our perspective, we are running a campaign at the moment at righttoroam.org.uk, where we're looking to extend the Countryside and Rights of Way Act to rivers, woodland and Greenbelt, simply because... The science has proven that for our mental and our physical health, we need a regular immersion in nature. Really, the one thing stopping us is just the right to to be able to do that. In Oxfordshire is a great example. You're allowed access to 10 percent of the woodlands. The rest are largely owned and fenced off so that people can shoot factory reared pheasants during the autumn months. The thing is, obviously, now people are feeling more viscerally than ever before what they've lost when they've lost their freedom of movement. But also they're now looking to nature uh, and and starting to explore uh, some of their local rights of way and just more than they ever have before. So in that context, like this is a negative thing to say, and I don't mean it uh, as such. I'm hopefully seeing the positive in it. But there is a crippling recession coming following the pandemic just like the last 10 years of austerity you know there was austerity and then the only people that benefited were the camping supply stops because people stopped going on holiday to Spain to Germany to Austria they started to look to their own country for the entertainment so you might go to Cornwall or Dorset as a holiday destination we're about to really need our countryside we're going to have our travel for lord knows how how many more years seriously affected During the pandemic, there was this uh, big hoo-ha about Bournemouth Beach. Everyone went to Bournemouth Beach and they left it in an absolute tip. Uh, And obviously, if we're talking about right to roam, we have to talk about litter and about how people treat the countryside. But in the 70s, in England, there was this notion invented of the honeypot, this idea that rather than let people creep and crawl and roam and ramble around your woodland or your fields, what you would do is funnel them to places with picnic benches, ice cream vans, basically create the experience of nature for people. Bournemouth Beach was a very good example of this. God knows how many rivers, woodlands, uh, meadows people had to drive by to get to Bournemouth Beach. All of these places, these forbidden lands that we have to pass before we can actually get to somewhere where we're allowed to be. So I would suggest that the future of travel, uh, at least for the next few years, is going to be within England and that is going to precipitate a desperate need to have more rights of access to the beautiful English countryside that everyone talks about or like it's on a postcard but how often do we actually get to experience it? We're going to experience it a lot more but for that to happen we need the rights to do it.
0: If I may turn to Emily on this theme now. Emily, you were talking about the difficulty of traveling to places that are affected themselves by us traveling there and by the effects of climate change. So I wonder if we're learning anything from our current situation about how to experience those places without actually going there. One of the themes in your book as well is about how we can learn from travel, not just by traveling ourselves, but through travel writers, through reading travel writers. Is there a way in which we can capture the value of travel without doing it ourselves?
1: Okay, two different issues there. So the first on this idea of travelling locally and experiencing nature, I think yes, <laughs> let's do more of that. So Henry Theroux wrote this book called Walden, where he ventured into the woods just a couple of miles from his town. Um, he built himself a log cabin, and he spends 18 months wandering around the trees and looking at various things. And then he mounts this argument that we should all be living closer to nature, thinking of ourselves as a part of nature, as opposed to commanding it, sort of having dominion over it. Um, Yes, I think this would be really good for all of us to do more of. When it comes to experiencing places that are far away through travel writing rather than visiting ourselves, philosophers have had really mixed views on this. So some famously argue but actually you have a much better experience if you read a piece of travel writing about a place rather than visiting. Uh, Socrates famously said that um, I'm never going to leave Athens. I can learn everything I want to about the world just by rifling the pages of a book. Others, and I think I'm one of them, that argue that you lose something if you don't visit a place that there is something that you gain from standing in a city and kind of breathing in the air. I think what you're losing there is this sense of unfamiliarity with your surroundings. I think it's very difficult through writing to fully immerse yourself in a place that's different to where you are. It, it, you can get a sense of it, but I think it's a hell of a lot easier just to go somewhere. So yes, I think that travel writing is a really important source of information about the world, but I don't think it's ever going to replace travel.
0: You're reminding me of the scene in Goodwill Hunting, where Robin Williams says, you know, you you might have read all about Michelangelo, but have you smelled what it's like inside the Sistine Chapel? So Colin, you, you already touched a bit on the way in which COVID restrictions are affecting the Roma community. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this. If, for example, you wrote recently in a blog post about the way in which Members of the Roma community are being blamed for, for example, spreading COVID through certain kinds of behaviour. So there's another side to the restrictions here and the way in which people are affected.
2: Uh, yeah, no, no, ve- very much. And um, and even before kind of COVID nineteen, um, I'm thinking here particularly of you know the turn, unfortunately, that we've seen in Hungary. Under Viktor Orbán um, and, and his kind of ruling party, but but also in Greece as well, and you had the uh, allegations that before COVID that Roma migrants, uh, you know, coming into these countries, including the UK. Uh, we' we're, we're not just um, you know we're not just terrorists, potential terrorists, which was one of the, the allegations that was being made, particularly with Orban, but also yeah, disease disease spreaders, this idea of contagion, this idea of of transmission. Uh, and 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 in a way, it goes back to slightly be slightly philosophical. I'm thinking here of Zimmel, who was a sociologist, but for a sociologist was quite philosophical. Uh, he wrote a brilliant essay called The Stranger, which talks about that kind of issue of the stranger who kind of comes today and actually stays tomorrow, so doesn't move on, but actually stays. And although his example in the community he was writing about was the Jewish community at that point, it could equally be applied, I think, today to to many different groups who are mobile, migrant groups who are mobile across borders. And uh, unfortunately, yes, the the Roma uh, within Europe you know, we're talking about a population of eight to twelve million people, multitude of different dialects um, and, and languages within within Romance, but the one thing they have in common is uh, racism. Thinking about France, I've already mentioned Greece and, and Hungary, and in Glasgow, I mean the situation with with us here in Glasgow, which is where I am. What we've seen is families responding to kind of COVID nineteen in in a mix of different ways. Um, some families, somewhat worryingly, have gone home. They've decided to go back to Romania and to Bulgaria and Slovakia because they feel safer there than they do within within Scotland, within the United Kingdom, because of the situation we're in here. Um, and they've had many buses and in, in vans. to to get back. But equally because of Brexit, and this is where you see Brexit and COVID kind of this unholy, unholy dovetailing, really, that's kind of going on right now. We've also seen many families trying to come in um, to the UK before the drawbridge of Brexit is finally bolted, bolted kind of up. So there has been some movement backwards and forwards and across borders. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that will continue because I go back to my earlier comments around the economic purpose, the material basis of travel in many for many different communities of whom Roma families are, are one example of that. But yes, I mean, I think it's, it's just really concerning the language and the terminology and the vilification that the communities have faced from really, from politicians and journalists who kind of should know better. But again, the unfortunate situation in Glasgow is the vast majority of Roma families from Central Eastern Europe live in the First Minister, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's constituency. So for that reason alone, you know, journalists and, and certain politicians who are not within the SNP uh, use it as a bit of a, a human rights kind of big stick to beat the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon with. And I think the constituency of Govan Hill is quite unique in that sort of sense. You don't see that, for example, in Manchester, in Sheffield, in London and some of the English cities which have large uh, Roma minorities within them. So, yes, it's, it's not a good news story, I'm afraid to say right now.
0: I'd love to bring in our audience now who've been thinking about the issues that you've raised. The first thing I want to mention is, is a compliment from uh, Luke Delano to, to Nick, uh, who loves your drawings and uh, loves the Book of Trespass. The reason I wanted to bring this up, Nick, is because you mention in the book itself, being able to draw sort of gives you a purpose and means that people look at you in a slightly different way, not necessarily as somebody who's just sort of loitering in the wrong place, but you've sort of got a job to do. So I wondered how much the illustrations and the experience of moving around came together.
3: Oh, well, I mean, I only really started trespassing because, uh, I don't know, when I was a kid and sketching about my local village, there's only so many times you can draw the one right of way through the wood before your natural curiosity takes over. And you see that fallen oak tree over there, and it's a lot more interesting than the farmer's barbed wire. And so that's what led me over the fence in the first place, I think. But then, if I'm honest, I think I, I, think I put the pictures in because over 10 years of being an illustrator, I have realized how people do have a kind of weakness for a pretty picture. And I knew that the risk that I was taking to do this book, that if I didn't do it right, it would be like, who the hell does he think he is? What kind of ruffian or vandal or vagabond? Or, you know, there would just be, and there has been uh, just a stunning amount of apoplectic rage that I should do anything so bold as sit in the shade of a tree and draw. But I I realised that drawing was a really good example of a creative response to nature and to beauty, an example of an enthusiasm, but also, uh, and I'm afraid to say, as just worked on a very basic level, people see the drawings and think, oh, well, he must be all right. And there's an awful lot of that. and But most of the book goes into talking about the kind of people that landowners or the landowning establishment don't have the same. You know, I'm pretty posh, I'm white, I'm male. It's pretty easy for me to, even if a gamekeeper comes up with a double barrel and starts shouting at me, it's pretty easy for me to wheedle my way out of it by just being a bit sort of tiddly bum, Hugh Grant, kind of uh, ever so sorry. If I had a different color skin, if I, if uh, I'd, if I was female, if I didn't identify as such. One of the whole things about property is that it decides what is proper and what is okay to happen on this land. Like there's no need to refer to outside morality. It's your land. You have full dominion over it. And that's what Colin was talking about, the Criminal and Public Order Justice Act in 1994. Ostensibly, it raised trespass to an aggravated level basically meant you could go you could get nicked for it underneath what it did was get rid of what Thatcher called the permissive society it got rid of or tried to get rid of hunt sabs ravers travellers protesters and protesters almost certainly will be affected of the nature of HS2 and all of that will almost certainly be affected by this criminalization of trespass by limiting people's rights to access land you're essentially covert dog whistle deciding who were the right and wrong people to exist in the country. Anyway, so I put the drawings in because I have noticed that people seem to think that that makes it OK. It's OK whether you draw or not. That's what my book's trying to say.
0: I want to pick up on a question here from Oliver Goodworth who asks about virtual reality and this ties into something uh, Emily was saying earlier so we have a question about whether virtual reality might be able to offer us a kind of immersive experience in a foreign place and would a virtual reality facilitated voyage lack something even if it were a perfect replication of a place. Emily what are your
1: thoughts on on this issue? This sounds like a proper thought experiment which I really welcome. (laughs) I think that's wonderful. My knee-jerk reaction is: uh, true reality is going to get you perhaps more than reading in some ways, but I still don't think it's going to get you all the way. And here's one example of why not. So, one aesthetic experience philosophers think you can get through traveling is the experience of something sublime and a kind of pleasurable terror and it's something like standing on the edge of a cliff looking out over the edge you know you're there it's scary but you're not actually falling over and I think that experience is not something you're going to get from reading a book or from virtual reality because you're just not close enough to the source of the fear you know that really you're safe at home on your sofa even if in virtual reality you're shark diving and and I think that there are going to be other experiences like that that you're just not going to be able to to replicate with virtual reality That said, I mean, my God, COVID times, (laughs) like one of my friends has a virtual reality headset. I've been using it a lot. It's fabulous.
0: Colin, we've got an interesting question from George Rustin. So he's pointing out that we've been talking about the negative trends, but is there any kind of Positive story that we can tell about the way that things are going now. Have there been any positive governmental moves in the direction of less discrimination, making things easier or better for members of the Roma community, for example?
2: Okay, I'll I'll try and be I'll try and be optimistic, (laughs) which is very unusual for me. In, In Scotland, we tend to do doom and gloom quite well, but I'll try and I'll try and counter that. I mean, I would say one sign of optimism, although although things have become embroiled a little bit more recently. But I I think one of the the reassuring things, if you think back to 2015, 2016, when we saw so many people losing their lives in the Mediterranean, trying to exit and trying to make their escape from Syria and and the kind of the, the aftermath of trying to escape the hostilities and the war and the conflict that was going there. And for a brief period in time, a very brief period in time, there was some awareness um and, and and a need for assistance and a need to and, and recognizing i suppose the securitization aspects of of migration and when states put up walls people will usually still find a way but you're going to kill people in the process and out of that i think what we saw particularly in germany and also i think in scotland i have to say uh, and there was a distinction i think between the approach in, from Holyrood to westminster was we had two politicians, two political leaders, Angela Merkel and Nicola Sturgeon, both making very public pronouncements about the needs for safety, places of refuge... Uh, the inclusion of refugees within society and in comparison to other european states including our uh, including uh, westminster i think the rhetoric was very different the public rhetoric was very very different and i wouldn't for one minute pretend that or, or or be deluded to think that, for example, Scotland or Germany is any less racist than England or France, but I think those polit- those political public statements from leaders, the responsibility of political leadership is quite important. So, I, I think that's something that you know I would flag up as being potentially quite interesting and quite important and and it should we should see more of it really if you're given a public platform you have a responsibility to use it wisely and i think unfortunately a lot of politicians do not do that and we've seen the consequences of that in in the rise of, of kind of the far right of fascism of populism thinking about what we saw in the states quite recently and so on but the other thing i the other thing i'd like to see and i'd like to hope is i'm still a firm advocate um and this i think the issues will become even more pressing, maybe in a post-COVID reality, is um, the end the end of nation states? You know, the, the end of border controls. I I I remain resolutely and ideologically committed to the notion of freedom of movement in in every single sense, uh, not just internally within our country, but also externally as well. And and yes, that has issues to go alongside it in a practical sense but i think fundamentally and ideologically we need to remain committed to this idea because we live on one planet you know and that's that's my ultimate position on this so i i I remain trying to remain optimistic about these things
0: I wanted to bring back Nick again here. So we've got a really interesting question from Susan Wolf, because Nick, obviously, when you're doing your roaming, you're respectful of the places in which you find yourself. But Susan's wondering about how we can teach people to respect the natural world. So she says she's from uh, one of the last wilderness places in the States, and sees people trampling through it. Is this a concern that we ought to have? Is this something that we need to take seriously?
3: Absolutely. We've realized uh, we're only like three months into this campaign, probably about half a year planning it as well. And we've realized that not just for the optics of it, that we need to persuade landowners that they're not going to see an increase in uh, LucasAid bottles and Red Bull cans, they're not going to see an increase as we saw over lockdown of disposable barbecue burn patches and pulled up fence posts and then going into all the sheep worrying from dogs or the crushing of ground nesting birds. We've realized that actually we need to solve this. If we're taking one step forward over the line and saying we need greater access to the countryside, The next step has to be, and this is how we're going to educate people. But it's a very current conservative government, Dominic Rabi sort of thing to blame the inherent lack of virtue of the individual, and to completely brush over the systemic infrastructure that has led people that way. We FOI'd the government uh, about the Countryside Code. How much have you spent on promoting the Countryside Code? In the last 14 years, the answer was £2,000, and that was just to reprint the pamphlet. I don't know how many of you have seen the pamphlet. There's just like six bullet points on an illustration that someone did on a computer five minutes. The Countryside Code used to be, in the 70s, taught in schools. Children used to practice the Countryside Code by going out into the countryside and learning it viscerally. Montessori, forest schools... Education in nature is a upper middle class privilege for 200 years, say, since the end of the last manic spate of enclosure. And it's still going on, and actually, lockdown has encouraged landowners or, or given them a sense of um, justification to shut more rights of way, etc. But since then, we have become so divorced from the countryside, so divorced from understanding how to treat it that. We've essentially forgotten what we've lost, but we've also forgotten what we can do to save it as well. So I understand we've got no time, but we are uh, in the next year, you'll see what we're going to do about it. But just one final point, because I don't actually buy the whole narrative that the public can't be trusted in the countryside. It is the other side of the coin that was minted by the aristocracy that says we own the land, therefore we're the only people that can decide what to do with it. For every picture you show me of litter during lockdown, I can show you 10 volunteer groups who not only volunteer every weekend just to go around and pick up other people's litter, but campaign for the health of rivers, test water samples. There's the recent victory in Ilkley where they just completely unpaid, all gathered together and campaign to have the River Wharf, it's the first one in England, uh, The water quality, they campaign to have it raised to the standard of an EU bathing spot. For humans to be able to swim in it, you've got to get the water good enough for herons, for pike, for barbel, for otters, for beavers, and then humans can swim in it. Humans, I would say, are, look at Surfers Against Sewage or Trash-Free Trails or Greenpeace. Any, all of these things have been set up by humans that care deeply for nature. And this narrative that the lion's share of us will go into the countryside just so we can run amok, so I can tear a branch off an oak tree and feel good about myself. You've You've got to take a minute to look at where that comes from because we all associate as people that love nature, but the majority of us probably have a sense of this sort of abstract other that has no care at all, these vandals. I would suggest that a large part of that is due to a narrative that's been forced down our throat as justification for the exclusive enclosure of English countryside.
0: Two questions that we've got now around the gendered nature of travel again, and I'm going to bring back Emily on this issue uh, because it's something that you write about in the book. So I wanted to ask for you to say a little something about the gendered nature of travel now. So, for example, we know that, you know, loan travelling for women can be extremely difficult. Uh, The other issue I wondered if you could talk a bit about is this gendered conception of the philosopher who can go out into nature on their own and live in in solitude with their thoughts. Uh, You know, when I hear this, I'm like, oh, I wish, especially right now, the idea of being on my own and, you know, separating myself from all family responsibilities and so on. It it seems like a beautiful dream, but not a possibility. So could you say a little bit about that gendered aspect for us?
1: I can. So in our society, various concepts, it can acquire a gender. So pinkness is often gendered female, for example. Um, The history of travel is largely male. If you Google famous travellers or famous explorers, 19 out of 20 names are going to be male. You know, Marco Polo, Scott of the Antarctic, Captain Cook, all these kinds of people. Um, And that history, it really sort of adds connotations to the way that we think about travel. For centuries, women weren't allowed to travel let alone by themselves in the West. And when we first begin to get uh, women travel writers, uh, mostly in the 19th century, who are traveling by themselves, um, like it's really shocking to the general public. And actually, these women were perceived to be very masculine as a result of their travels. So people say things like, "Oh well, Mary Kingsley, and um, it's a surprise on meeting her to find that she's so dainty," <laughs> because they assume she's going to be this kind of big burly. <laughs> <laughs> masculine women. So there's this male history of travel that is definitely still ongoing today. It is seen to be more surprising to be a solo woman traveler than to be a solo male traveler. We still find travel writing dominated by men less and less as the year goes on, but it is still very much the case. If you look at things like prestigious prizes and editing of travel writing journals and things, it's often that men kind of at the top. So that gendering is very much still around. And the solitary travel thing is really interesting because it's a less obvious way of gendering travel. So in the same way that travel is something that's historically seen as a male activity, so also is solitude. Being by yourself is something that men do. And in fact, if you look at philosophical writing on solitude, what you find is men talking about how they need to get away from their wives, (laughs) Um, the solitude is about shutting out the women. It's not something that a woman would do to go and shut out the men. Um, and then these things it come together in this genre of solitary travel, that it becomes it, um, a really male activity yeah, um, and a really extra unusual thing for a woman to do yeah, as a result. Yeah, um, and that's not just uh, like women explorers who are traveling across the seas. That also applies to things like there is wilderness travel, rambling in the woods around your home, and it's seen as something a man is more likely to do than a woman.
0: There was a, a nice line in your five books interview where you talked about the myth of the solitary traveller in the sense that a lot of these travel writers are actually travelling with their wives, but the wives are sort of written out of the picture.
1: It's a really common trope. <laughs>
0: Very, very interesting. So we've got a question, um, an anonymous question here about the issue of whether travelling, luxury travelling to, say, Southeast Asian countries, to luxury resorts that don't reflect the lives of the local community, whether that's a sort of problematic
1: form of travel. I don't think it's problematic in itself, Um, as long as it's done In a way that actually benefits the local society and isn't taking advantage, I don't see why it would be intrinsically unethical. That said, you might wonder what the point of it is. If one of the reasons that we travel is to immerse ourselves in another society or learn about the world, it seems as though flying thousands of miles to a resort where you're surrounded by people who speak your language, who are maybe even serving you familiar food, and just isn't gonna get you
2: what you want. I mean this is this is slightly on a tangent to that. Uh, but I remember I remember being in Newcastle. Uh, where, where there's quite a large... Uh, I, used to, I used to live and work down there uh, a, a wee while ago, and uh, there's a large uh, chauffeur families, showground families down, down there, the town Moor. And I remember speaking to a couple of the families there, and what they do is that for two two to three months of the year, uh, they would ship all their, uh, you know, their big rides, their kind of fair, fair equipment and, and the rides out to Southeast Asia uh, at great expense, great expense. But they would make so much money in that two to three months whilst out there, that it was cost effective for them to ship it out and then ship it back. And then to basically spend the rest of the year doing maintenance work on the rides in order to go back, and it was the younger, it was the younger families that did this uh, in the main, and that that I thought is was a really interesting example of that a, a form of commercial nomadism, which is also a form of tourism uh, as well as industry, because obviously in the downtime that the families had when the rides weren't working, uh, although they did work quite intensively, and they were also seeing different parts of the world that they would never normally see if they were doing the fair circuit. Around the United Kingdom, you know, and I thought that was a—I'd I'd never heard of that before. That was probably the mid '90s, late '90s. I came across that, and I thought that was really interesting. But that's kind of all I have to say on the matter, really. I've—I've I've never been. I've, that's one part of the world I know any, nothing about. And I, I think as long as it's done ethically, I think as as Emily said, as long as this is done in an ethical manner and you kind of pay back uh, to some extent. Uh, although the notion of that kind of travel right now is alien, isn't it? I mean, when will we be able to do that again? Even if possible
0: you know. Nick did you want to come in on this issue?
2: I think it's about as ethical as any
3: class dynamic can be like I I just don't think there is a way of going to a hotel uh, you know a luxury spa hotel and not engaging in class hegemony to be honest. Um, Also it's sort of it might be apocryphal but it made me think of uh, isn't there a French colony that has black volcanic sands so France ships white sand from the beaches of the south of France out. You know, we learn about this in geography, longshore drift will take the white sand and reveal the volcanic sand. So to maintain the tourist industry on those beaches in its colony, France creates the look of a white sand beach by shipping it out, you know, in containers. There's something about going to these places that is about control. It's not leaving yourself open to the chaos and the melee of uh, another country and another language, and the reality of whatever it is might happen—it's kind of a mini gap here, isn't it? It's kind of just uh, cushioning yourself. It's the rich equivalent of bringing, a, you know, a pot of marmite and a tin of Heinz baked beans when you, in the seventies, when you go on holiday to Spain. It's refusing to taste another culture and needing to control. I mean, it's not even colonialism or something. It's just this sense that you need that the way you approach life is that you need to control every aspect of it and it slightly panics you to open yourself up to the reality of something that you don't understand. I've done it once in India. Uh, I spent three months in India and then a mate came over to visit and she was adamant that we'd spend that week in a hotel. That was just a week I didn't spend in India, basically.
0: We haven't talked much, have we, about the privatisation of public space? I wonder if we could say a little bit more about that from you, Nick, and and from Colin. Colin, for example, we've got a question about how the move towards privatisation of public space is affecting Roma communities. And Nick, this is a a theme that you bring up in your work as well. So over to you two.
2: Okay. I mean, I'll I'll just say something very briefly. Again, we we go back to the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994. And like I mentioned earlier, that ripped up uh, effectively local authority site provision and instead uh, travel. Traveller families were asked to provide for their own sites and the richer, and again, there's class dynamics in, in the traveler world as is, as is anywhere else, really. And the richer families did exactly that. They bought their own land and they quickly learned that they had to buy the land and then apply for planning permission, because if they applied for planning permission first, it would get rejected. I mean, it's up there with uh, the rejection rates, up there with taxi ranks uh, and pizza takeaway hut. Uh, You you just don't get planning permission. So instead, uh, families in England in particular, it was more, you know, you'd you'd buy the land off a sympathetic landowner and then you'd apply for retrospective planning permission. And that's led to a situation today where many families are uh, living on borrowed time on land that they legally own. Uh, and, and again, I know Nick and also Damien, Damien Labat, who I mentioned earlier, they both talk about this and their sort of work. So that is a big concern that you, you can't say on one hand, you need to provide your own sites and, and rip up local authority provision and then say, well, we know you've tried to do it, but we're not going to let you do that because we're not going to give you planning permission to do it. That kind of leaves people and families without a home, effectively homeless, no legal place to site their trailers. Uh, their caravans and the pitches uh, and the site provision uh, is not maintained so th- this is a really big fear that we have but it's no surprise I mean this was Thatcherism you know and and then John Major kind of personified really and, and going back quickly to an earlier discussion uh, I, I think Nick one of the things we need to reclaim is I'm sure you remember it as well what Douglas Hurt uh, when he was home secretary called New Age travellers he, he talked about them as medieval brigands I think we need to I think we need to reclaim that one. I think I think medieval brigands is the way to go. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. The, the Douglas Hurd, when he was home secretary, he, he talked about new age travellers. This is about 92, 93, as medieval brigands. That's the imagery that he invoked, really. But the thing is, the the travel, the New Age travellers I spent time with uh, down in the, the West Country in particular, they loved it. They thought this is brilliant. This is a badge of honour, almost, to be called the brigands. You know, they, they loved it. But yeah, the, the enclosure of the, enclosure, the privatisation, the commodification, really, uh, uh, in neoliberal conditions is a real concern for many families. And it, it particularly penalises the families that need to rely on effectively social Social housing social provision that's the families i'm I'm very worried about because if you if you've got the money if you've got the resources if you know the lawyers then you can fight to get retrospective planning permission you know families have done that they have won cases but you've got to have you've got to have the the money to do that
3: oh yeah if if someone called me a middle medieval brigand i would be able to just laugh it off or a gypsy you know on account of living on a boat or something because i am my my nest is feathered like my parents still have a a spare room that either me or my brother if everything fell in uh, Mm. could go and uh sleep in that's called being middle class pretty much um what the criminalization of trespass is uh, intending to do is if you have... Uh, it used to be any more than six vehicles to go onto land that you didn't own, you would mm. be criminal. Now it's two. And we're not even sure in the boating community, like during lockdown, no mooring signs went up all along the Thames, including the place that I used to play when I was a kid where I grew up in Beale Park. Now it's no mooring, no mooring, no mooring. If we bosh in our mooring pins, we'd maybe say... Our boat and then a little butty, something without an engine, that counts as two two vehicles. Mm-hmm. It's not just that we'll go to prison for it; it's that those vehicles will be impounded, and yeah. the vehicles are the homes. So, what the Conservatives are trying to do—that you know—it they use this sort of pompous language, and we we sort of knee-jerk laugh at it. We think Boris Johnson is a funny person. But it's endemic of this sort of deep-rooted mycelium of orthodoxy that this is the right way to be, to be someone that went to Eton, to be someone uh, that can recite Herodotus, but not to be someone uh, with a ring through your septum or uh, one dreadlock. There's no basis of that. They're just scared of people that aren't like them and they have been in power for so long. And so, like you said everything about the privatisation of public space. It used to be called enclosure. They're now called POPs, privately owned public spaces. Every space was not owned at a certain point. There was a time where someone put the fences up and by putting the fences up, divested the local people of their rights to that land. Not just their rights to the resources of the land, but their right to defend the sustainability of the resources, like privatization, is the core reason uh, when it comes to land, of the depletion of resources, because in under English law, you're allowed not just to do whatever you want with the land, but you're allowed to destroy it if you want. The commons, public rights to public spaces, was all about you didn't own the land, you borrowed it off your children. They were born with a deep sense that this river, or this water meadow, or whatever it might be, Uh, was for their grandchildren. They elected Reeves every year, who were basically the people to oversee. That if you wanted shale or gravel or whatever, that you could take so much, but you had to be aware that you couldn't take any more than your fair share, certainly not for private profit to sell it on down the road kind of thing. This belonged to your grandchildren.
0: It's been so interesting uh, going from Colin's comment about the ideology of sedentarism to hear all about how much a part of our lives, travel, movement, mobility is and how valuable it is in all sorts of different ways. So I want to thank our fantastic panel for that really illuminating conversation. Join us next week for Spaced Out. Until then, bye bye.